You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Gazing over the countless fluctuations and transformations in Earth's multi-billion year history, I am struck by the unique strangeness of the present moment. We suddenly find ourselves sort of running a planet, a role we never anticipated or sought, without knowing how it should be done. We're at the controls, but we're not in control. This book is my view of how we got into this situation and where that leaves us now. A child of the space age, I grew up captivated by the romance of planetary exploration. My timing was right to become a NASA research scientist working in the new field of astrobiology, the scientific study of life in the universe. My participation in the spacecraft exploration of other planets has informed my view of our presence on this one. In these pages, I'll describe how we humans fit into the long-term story of Earth and how I believe this knowledge can help us to navigate our current time of environmental stress and uncertainty about the future. David Grinspoon is an astrobiologist, an award-winning science communicator, and a prize-winning author. He is a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute and adjunct professor of astrophysical and planetary science at the University of Colorado. His research focuses on climate evolution on Earth-like planets and potential conditions for life elsewhere in the universe. He is the author of Venus Revealed, a new look behind the clouds of our mysterious twin planet and lonely planets, the natural philosophy of alien life. His new book is Earth in Human Hands, Shaping Our Planet's Future. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Grinspoon. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. You write, and I think this is important, that we have entered a new geological epoch called the Anthropocene. Tell us what an epoch is and why we're naming this new one. Well, most of your listeners are probably familiar with uh, what we call the geological time scale, which is often represented as a vertical stack of layers of um, different strata in the rocks, representing different, different periods of Earth history as we go back in time. And the, the sort of relatively narrow layers in that stack we call epochs. So for instance, uh, about 10,000 years ago, we entered into what is uh, called the Holocene Epoch, which came about at the end of the last Ice Age. And that is the time period that we're supposedly in now in, in Earth history. And yet some scientists have proposed that we have recently entered a new epoch, the Anthropocene, meaning time of humans. It's an acknowledgment of the fact that our planet is being uh, rapidly and radically transformed now by a new force, and that new geological force is us. And so it's, uh, it's a controversial idea. Uh, you know, some people think it's arrogant. Why should we name a geological age after ourselves? But on the other hand, if you just look at the data, look at what's happening to our planet, it's undeniable that something new and different is happening, and that's it's the result of a new agent of change, which is humanity. So, so naming it the Anthropocene, in a way, is, is a kind of owning up to that. Uh, I think, too, that 
this speaks to one another central concept in this book, and I think that's a concept that we all really need to wrap our brains around, which is the idea of deep time. When David Grinspoon walks around the world, I think he sees a really different world than the rest of us. So explain how that world is informed by deep time. Yeah, well, my approach to uh, our current moment on Earth comes out of my background as a planetary scientist. Professionally, what I do is I model the evolution of planets like Earth. And so I think in terms of billions of years and sort of the major transitions that have happened and can happen to worlds, including our own, but not just our own. I, I've modeled the evolution of Venus and Mars and looked at, you know, what are sort of the major, the highlights of their existence, the way a human being might look and say, well, yeah, I've lived for all these years, but if I had to pick, you know, a few moments, I might pick you know, when I got married or um, when, when I had my first child or got my degree, you know, sort of the highlights. What are the highlights of your life? Well, what are the highlights of our planet's life? You know, and, and, and there are a few that one can name, the origin of life and, uh, you know, sort of the, the, these, uh, these major breaks from the past, major transitions. And so that's my perspective is to look at what's happening on Earth now in terms of this long time field, the long, this tableau of deep time. And it does give us a somewhat different perspective on our own moment and, you know, sort of allows us to place ourselves, if we're going to think of ourselves as a geological force, which I think we have to now, I think we also have to learn to think in terms of geological time. And so by taking a slightly extraterrestrial view on ourselves, I think it, it, it can help us to think of ourselves in that way. And that's, if I had to name one goal that I had for this book, Earth in Human Hands, it would be to try to help us to see ourselves in deep time. This is a book that is really all about perspective, about giving the reader perspective, pulling us back, taking us out, and to allow us to look upon ourselves with new eyes, which is really important because we're doing something that has never been done before on Earth. But one thing what we're doing that has been done before where there's a lot of apocalyptic fear. I mean, it seems like every year the apocalypse is just around the corner. However, it's not like there's just one apocalypse. There have been already been several. So talk about the, the, some of the multiple apocalypses that have happened to the Earth, and especially the one that gave birth to oxygen. Yeah, so I think that's one thing people maybe don't realize is that our planet and our biosphere, the life on the planet, have been through a multitude of crises, including almost being wiped out several times. You know, there was something called, uh, that we refer to as the Great Dying, which was 250 million years ago, uh, the Permo-Triassic extinction. Again, we're talking about these layers in the geologic strata, which gives it that, that name. And this was the worst you know, the worst thing that ever happened <laughs> in terms of uh, life on Earth really almost being wiped out. And the cause of that was just a dramatic, uh, massive eruption of huge amounts of volcanic material in, in Siberia, generating what we now call the Siberian Traps, this vast area of volcanic rock. But there was so much greenhouse gas came out at the same time, uh, and, and so many poisonous materials came out from the interior of the Earth that the biosphere was overwhelmed with climate change and with various kinds of chemical poisoning, and almost all life died out at that moment. 
going back further in time to the, to the uh, episode you referred to was uh, what we call, you know, the oxygen catastrophe. And people think, well, oxygen, I, I love oxygen. How could that be a catastrophe? But the fact is, when it first flooded the atmosphere, it was an evolutionary event. It was due to life discovering that it could exploit solar energy, inventing photosynthesis, which of course is a great invention, but it led to this massive chemical change in the atmosphere, the rise of oxygen because of photosynthesis that life was unprepared for. And oxygen flooded the atmosphere and it again wiped out much of life because oxygen is poison to organic life. Because it reacts very strongly, it destroys organic matter. Now we have evolved the capacity to take advantage of those reactions. That's what we call respiration. We breathe in oxygen, we burn food in a controlled way with enzymes, we release that energy, that's how we live, that's how we power ourselves. But before that evolved, those same chemical reactions that we power ourselves with just destroyed organic life. So it was, it was a massive catastrophe, and it was one that was brought about by life. And it's an interesting thing, I discuss it in the book, to point out that we are not the first species to come along and kind of wreck the planet for other life. And that leads to the question, well, so what's different about now? And of course, there, there's an interesting answer to that. Well, uh, tell us what is different about now. Yeah, so, you know, what have we got that the cyanobacteria don't have? Uh, we're, we're not the first planet wreckers, but of course, we're having this conversation. <laughs> we have culture. <laughs> we have culture. We have... Um, minds and um, the ability to see what we're doing, contemplate, discuss, um, perhaps uh, have feelings of regret and desire to change course. Whether we have those qualities in sufficient quantity to really change course and really take hold of ourselves is of course a vexing question. But uh, you know, one of the things I say in the book is that we are the first geological force to be aware of itself. And so just the fact that we're having this conversation, um, you know, illustrates the, the big difference between us and the cyanobacteria. We at least have a shot at um, saying, you know what, maybe we shouldn't wreck the planet. <laughs> Whereas I, I don't think the, the cyanobacteria ever really had that opportunity. They were, in a sense, almost the mirror image of life. And they, they just used everything up and then left us with a perfectly well-oxygenated planet. You know, um, one of the things that uh, you talk about in this book that I think another core concept is what's called Gaia. And Gaia is often lampooned and as new age. And it, there are, as you discuss, some of that is a bit on the deliberate side by the two people who came up with the concept. So discuss these two fascinating people and their uh, constant rebellion. <laughs> yeah, well, the Gaia hypothesis was devised by... Uh, James Lovelock, Jim Lovelock, and Lynn Margulis. Uh, Lovelock was an atmospheric chemist, inventor, uh, I should say is, Jim Lovelock is still alive. Lynn Margulis was a brilliant maverick biologist who pioneered the theory of endosymbiosis, a new idea about evolution, that evolution wasn't all just about competition and fighting to the death, that cooperation has been an equally important force in evolution, that assemblages of organisms getting together and mutually benefiting from associations 
in fact, sometimes so strongly that they evolve new organisms from constituent parts of other organisms, that that has been an equally powerful force of evolution. So, so Lynn Margulis pioneered that idea. And then Gaia was a fascinating sort of combination of those perspectives, because uh, Jim Lovelock was thinking about the effect of life on an atmosphere. Uh, actually, he was thinking about it because NASA asked him to think about life on, finding life on Mars. And, and he realized that life transforms its atmospheres. That's a quality of life. And then Lynn, with her perspective on evolution, they got together and realized that in a certain sense, the evolution of life itself had controlled Earth's atmosphere in a way that people hadn't realized before. And they took it to a very controversial level. They said, well, the Earth is alive. And in a certain sense, Earth in its entirety is an organism that they named Gaia. And th they actually had some very profound insights that I think have changed the way we think about life on planets. And the Gaia hypothesis is a very important insight into the role of life on the planet. And yet, as you alluded to, and as I discussed in the book, Margulis and Lovelock are both sort of are people that have enjoyed their role as mavericks to the point where I think they uh, sort of liked the fact that people um, were shocked by their ideas and pushed it to a shocking level. They, I think they, they're, they're both sort of tricksters, and they like being controversial. And so the fact that when they said, Earth is alive, it freaked people out. Um, because people say, well, no, the Earth isn't a living organism, it's a planet. And, you know, they sort of play with the boundaries of w what we know and what we think and what science can really say. And, it, and there are some really interesting boundary questions, because when you start to look at Earth from that Gaia perspective, you realize that what we think of as the living and what we think of as the non-living parts of Earth, it's not really as clear-cut as we used to think of, because when you start mm -hmm. looking at these cycles, the carbon cycle, and, the, you know, something like a coral reef, is that alive or dead, that the, the quote, dead parts of it mm -hmm. are created by life and support future life. And so in a way, they're, they're alive. And then you can extend that. And there, there are ways in which the, quote, non-living parts of Earth are part of this cyclic living behavior. So they really played with those boundaries in a, in a way that, that, that tweaked the noses of the scientific community. And I think that they had fun with it. But I think it also led to a little bit of uh, maybe more resistance to the Gaia hypothesis among the scientific community than would have existed had they kind of played by the rules a little bit more. But I think ultimately, and you say this, it, the, the Gaia hypothesis has really taken over our consciousness, though we might want, not want to call it that. And uh, the perspectives of this book, one of the things this book does is it makes you start thinking of perspective, of zooming in and zooming out. And you talk, we now know that humans are much more colonies than we are single individuals. Our, even our thought processes are apparently controlled by the microbes living in our guts. So uh, who's to say that we aren't the microbes living in the guts of a planet? Yeah, that's right. I mean, one thing Lynn Margulis always used to say was you are not an individual, you have never been an individual. Meaning that if you really look at the way a human being functions, we are communities oh, sure, inside. Yeah. And that, of course, recently has become the, the focus of a big story about the microbiome and the microbiota, and it's all over the news now, and there are popular books about it. But Margulis was saying this for decades before, <laughs> now everybody is saying it. And in the same way, you're right, the, the, uh, their ideas about the Earth 
have been largely adopted. And you'll hear, you'll hear a lot of Earth scientists saying, well, I don't believe in the Gaia hypothesis. I think it's flaky. But then you listen to what they do believe, and they talk about Earth system science, which is now the, the, you know, the catchword for, for the, our big picture view of the Earth. Well, Earth system science is the Gaia hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Because what Margulis and Lovelock all along were saying is we have to include the life processes in our global models of the cyclic functioning of the Earth. And now those life processes are included in what we call Earth system science. So in a certain sense, they won the battle with their ideas, even if people don't necessarily realize it. So you'll still hear people saying, well, I don't believe in the Gaia hypothesis. That's flaky. But then you look at their models, and they're basically doing Gaian science. Well, two, if we're learning to treat the Earth as an entity, also we're learning that it's not infinite. <laughs> We, our old version of the Earth was the life lives here and a life can just go on and on and on, keep reproducing, and this Earth is infinite. And, but we have now, we have learned the exact opposite of that, which is not a lesson that people seem to even want to learn, even when it's like being dropped on our heads with 50-pound magnets. Yeah, well, you can understand why that idea seemed outlandish mm -hmm. at one point, and even maybe sort of built into our psychology, it seems outlandish, because... We, like all other creatures, evolved and tried to get good at what we did to survive and, you know, invented tools and technology and culture. But still, it was, we existed and the greater background of our existence was the world, you yeah. know? And it seemed, it makes sense that it seemed like this immutable, huge, vast thing that we weren't in charge of or changing. We were living in it and on it and responding to it. Why should we think we could change the world? You know, that's something that maybe the gods did, but not us. So we'd use things up and throw them away. And it seemed like there was an away, a place where, you know, that the world was infinite. Of course it seemed infinite. When we started off very small and the world is, is huge. And then without realizing it, we did so well at multiplying and getting better at our technology and getting better at manipulating our local environments to, to survive, to do what, what all life does that we started to, to have a global effect and to change the world. But, you know, who would have thought? You know, it, it sort of doesn't make sense that you can change the world until you step back and, you know, you, you, you get off it, you, you launch a rocket and you look back and you see that, oh, this is a finite object moving in space. It's not infinite. And, yeah, we're, we've populated it. We're, we're all over it. And, in fact, oh, yeah, we're changing it. You know, that's... <laughs> That's a revelation, and it seems obvious to, to you and I now because we're growing up in the space age and we're surrounded by evidence of climate change and all this, but I, I think people don't realize how recent this revelation is that we live on a finite planet and that, you know, that, that we can change the world. And I think that, that a lot of the sort of hopelessness we feel now, now when people are sort of down on the human race, but they don't realize maybe how new this challenge is and that... I urge that we have a little more sympathy for ourselves because it's sort of shocking. And we're really, we're only a couple generations into this, into the space age. And I think that we can and we will do better once we really propagate this knowledge of ourselves as planet-changing entities living on a finite world. You know, that's one of the things I, that I found strange about this book because here's a book that's about global climate change. 
it looks like it's not going to be a happy subject, but I think it's you have a very positive outlook uh, based on the idea that if we have enough power to cause the changes that we have caused thus far, clearly we have enough power to undo them. It might not be quite as easy to put the genie back in the bottle, but we can just figure out a different bottle. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because people are responding to the book and saying, wow, you have a more positive outlook than I expected. And yet, it's funny because I think, do I have a positive outlook? I don't expect that the next few decades of human existence on this planet are going to be very easy. I think we have oh, no. huge challenges that we're facing. And yet, I also do have a vision that I think is credible of where we can get to in the next century and the century after that that is more positive. And, you know, they say that one definition of, uh, of maturity maybe is being able to hold more than one seemingly conflicting idea in your head at the same time. And I think that it is not only possible, but I would argue essential that we're able to feel the pain and the difficulty and the challenge of what we're faced with immediately while also holding on uh, optimistic and positive vision of where we want to be going as a species in the longer run. I think that long-term vision can help us deal with the short-term challenges. So, uh, you know, I, yeah, I do have what people might describe as a, as a rosy vision of where this could all go, but I don't want people to think that I minimize the challenges of what we're facing now because they're, they're um, very uh, extreme. No, not, not, they are not, those challenges aren't minimized in this book. That we face a, a potential world of hurt, but having inflicted a world of hurt, perhaps we are the right people to come after it. I think, too, you talk about ways to bring people together. And one way to mobilize people is with planetary defense, uh, particularly when you start out against asteroids. One of the movies I most hated ever in my entire life, regretted the time, was a movie called Armageddon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, cheesy. <laughs> that that said, that's a real threat, and that's something you think we should, uh, by paying attention to that, we can start the process of bringing the world together. Yeah, you know, Hollywood is great at taking real ideas that we should think about and turning them into regrettable, cheesy movies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can look at, at aliens and asteroids and climate change. What was that movie, The Day After Tomorrow? You know, oh, yeah. like, so these are all real things that we ought to think about that uh, get reduced to these silly plots. But one of the things I advocate is, is taking this long-term view. And when we do that, we see that there's real potential to turn around our role. Right now, we're playing this uh, sort of destabilizing, you know, vandalizing role on, on the earth. We're but the teenagers who won't clean up the room. Exactly, yeah. We're, we're in this adolescent phase of not really thinking through consequences, just kind of acting out on the planet. And it's, it's dangerous. We're going to live forever. Exactly. It's dangerous. It's scary. But at the same time, there are signs, and, and you can point to them. I, I describe several in the book that we have this other capacity to see what we're doing and change course, which if you think about it, is that's just basic cognitive function. If you think about an individual growing up, mm -hmm. a baby, learning, you know, not to um, soil their crib or whatever, that, or, you know, seeing an obstacle and not walking into it, steering <laughs> around it, that's basic self-preservation. That is what we need to learn collectively, globally. It's, it's not rocket science. It's just like, you know, not walking into the wall, it's walking <laughs> around it. And we do have that capacity. Uh, for instance, look at the, um, you know, the ozone layer was a, was a threat that we perceived, and it was kind of an emergency, and we had a global 
discussion about it. And it wasn't all easy. There was resistance and denial and, you know, all the same kind of stuff that's happening now with climate change. People said it was a hoax. But we got it together and made global agreements and changed the way we were using technology so that now the ozone layer is on its way to being fixed. And that's an example, and there are others, that we have this capacity to act in a different way. And if thinking in the long-term future, how we might apply technology once we get this more multi-generational, long-term global perspective, which I feel is slowly coming, painfully slowly, but it is coming, (laughs) then we can start to think of, well, what are the long-term threats? And yes, asteroids. You know, we don't have to go the way of the dinosaurs because we have a space program. The dinosaurs didn't. And we can see them coming. We can divert them. And other things, too, ice ages. We can prevent the next ice age. I do think in the long run we can prevent mass extinction and save many more species than we are threatening now. Again, we've got some immediate work to do, but I think we have to think about what kind of role do we want to play on this planet, not what do we want to avoid. And then we, when you think of the long term, you start to realize we do have this capacity to actually play a constructive role that, that nobody else could play. Because we, can, uh, we do have science, and we can see the Earth from a distance. We can see what's happening. We can see what's coming. And uh, we could turn things around and actually be a very positive force for the preservation of the biosphere. This all hinges on science working. Uh, science is a little bit broken now, or actually science isn't, but society isn't harboring science correctly. Talk about the what, what's happening in this moment, and it's not new. It happened Galileo. It, it, this is not a new thing. The world does not always welcome the announcements of science. Yeah, well, right now, uh, when, when you and I are speaking, we're at a very interesting and challenging time, <laughs> um, to say the least. And there is this sort of anti-science movement, or I think sort of several different anti-science movements that are coalescing a little bit. This is part of this larger phenomenon that I think those of us who um, like to think we're um, sort of evidence-based in our approach to the world are a little bit befuddled by this sort of attack on, not just on specific truths, but on the notion of truth, on the notion of established, agreeable facts and and views about the world. And science is very vulnerable to this because science thrives on doubt. What makes science so powerful is the fact that we don't all agree and that nothing is believed with complete certainty. Our story is always changing and always subject to revision by new data. And everything we believe, if you, you, know, you poke a scientist and you take the most established belief and you say, do you, you know, completely 100% believe in that no matter what? And they'll say, no, if you come up with some evidence and, and produce a better theory, I'll, I'll change my mind. So we are, paradoxically, our great strength comes from the fact that we don't completely believe what we believe. And that makes us vulnerable I think, to attacks on our credibility by people that want to say, aha, you don't, you know, that might be wrong, there's doubt, there's a possible other explanation, you said it yourself, you know, so we, we have this integrity of admitting our doubts, which is part of our strength, but I think it makes us vulnerable to people that want to sort of chip away at the certainty and what we, what we are certain about. So there's a mismatch between the way science feels 
its own integrity and the way we're used to welcoming criticism and welcoming doubt. There's mm -hmm. a mismatch between that and the fact that there are people that, for various agenda-driven reasons, want to cast doubt on what it is that we're telling the world. So, you know, when we talk about, for instance, climate change, obviously a very important subject, you know, we, the way we talk with one another is we say, well, there's a, you know, 90 whatever percent chance uh, that this is right, and that's pretty good, so we really, you know, that motivates this reason for action. But somebody who doesn't like that conclusion and wants to attack it can say, oh, so you're not really sure. And they can look at, find what's the source for that 4% of doubt. And then they can really say, well, let's play that up, you know, and you guys don't know anything and therefore we shouldn't act because you're not sure. And so we're vulnerable to that. And I think that we're starting to do a better job at learning to operate in that environment of sort of hostility to uncertainty. And yet it's fraught with, with danger for us because you could easily see us responding sort of overly defensively and then pretending we're more certain than we are, which is also not, you know, not good for our integrity. No. So it's, it's kind of a minefield for us. This, it's a, there's a mismatch between scientific thought and political thought that mm -hmm. I think we're still like learning how to navigate. I think a, a lot of that is helped by books like yours where the story of science is set down in words which are a lot less mutable than stuff that is tweeted, stuff that is Facebooked, stuff that is posted, that you know the actual printed words make a difference. And also, uh, what you do so importantly here, and we've talked a little bit about that, is storytelling to use Arn, to use the human inclination to see anything as a narrative. And if as scientists create compelling narratives, they'll out-storytell those who want us to believe something different. Yeah, I, um, uh, thank you for saying that about the book. I mean, it is interesting that um, I, I do try to talk about, well, what is it about humans that's really new and different? And part of what makes us human is our penchant for storytelling. We are not just these clever apes with somewhat well-developed brains, maybe not well-developed enough, but we're inherently social. Mm -hmm. Our prowess in the world is inherently about communicating with one another and planning and preserving collective knowledge and passing that collective knowledge on to other generations. So storytelling and narrative is built into the way we function in the world and what makes us good at what we do. And we need to get better at some of what we do and enlarge those circles of cooperation ultimately to to some degree encompass the whole globe uh, I think believe it or not we're on our way to doing that although mm -hmm. there's you know resistance and all kinds of counter narratives but so of course I do think it's important for scientists to embrace narrative and that is what I try to do in this book is tell the story of our planet and tell the story of humanity in ways that hopefully help illuminate our challenges and I think yeah telling our stories is a part of the solution in terms of if you add it all up you know yeah you can say well there's doubt about this one particular part of climate change you can say there's doubt about that people can chip away at it and yet if you look at the overall narrative of what's happening on earth with the declining sea ice the changing atmospheric composition the uh, species moving you know fish migrating to northern more northern waters because the water is heating up you know it, the list goes on and on if you add that all together the narrative of our times leads one to 
conclude irrefutably that the world is changing in ways that match what scientifically makes sense in terms of the human influence on our planet. And the story itself is stronger than any one piece of evidence. Mm. And so it's very important, I think, to tell that story. Well, for me, the story that, one of the stories I kind of got out of your book was that beforehand I just felt there was me, but as I read this book, I got to think of more, more and more of the earth as a car, like that I could get in, that I could drive, that I had this relationship with, that I do this and it does that, and I do this and it responds back to me. And I think that that's the way we need to look at the planet. Yeah, the, 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 it's a complex um, system that in some ways is like a complex machine, like a car or something. That that analogy is good because there, you know, there are controls that can be pulled and ways in which the planet. Uh, right now, of course, like I said in the in the intro, we're at the controls, but we're not in control. We're sort of yanking on the wheel, but with no idea how to drive. And yeah. it's a matter of waking up before it's too late and realizing, oh, we're at the wheel of this complex machine. But we could, you know, look <laughs> look up at where we're going, look through the windshield and see, and actually like decide, hey, let's let's not just like yank at the the wheel at random. Let's drive and see where we're going. I feel like that is our obligation. We can't just take our hands off the wheel now because we've created this world with, you know, seven billion and rapidly growing people and, that are dependent upon a global agricultural system and an energy system that you know is interacting with the natural world in complex ways. We can't just stop what we're doing without creating great harm. So what we have to do is realize what we're doing and, and find a way to you know, sort of steer in a more intelligent direction. I would be remiss not to mention one of my favorite characters from the Atomic Age, a man named Enrico Fermi. I always loved Fermi because he worried that maybe we shouldn't set off the atomic bomb because it might set the atmosphere on fire. <laughs> guy, the guy who thinks like that is a guy who thinks well. So tell us a little bit about Fermi's paradox. Yeah, Enrico Fermi, of course, one of our great physicists. And there are, there's a whole class of questions that scientists call Fermi questions because Fermi had this way of engaging people by posing these questions that got people to think quantitatively about complex problems. For instance, a famous Fermi question is, uh, you know, how many piano tuners live in Chicago? And you, could, you can actually kind of estimate it by if you say, well, the population of Chicago is approximately, you know, I don't know how many million and uh, greater Chicago, and, and you figure this percentage of people probably play piano, and they probably need to get their piano tuned, you know, this, this often. And, and you just making that basic logic, you come up with a, a Fermi answer for the number of piano tuners in Chicago, and that, that if you compare to the actual number, is pretty good. It's maybe mm -hmm. within 20% or something. That's just a random example. So Fermi, one day, uh, legend has it, at lunch in Los Alamos, they were talking about extraterrestrials and the possibility of intelligent extraterrestrials. This is in the 1940s, you know, during the, the Manhattan Project. Uh, and he, Fermi said, where are they? Which meant something much more specific in his circle. It meant, okay, so if you imagine there's this many stars that probably have this many planets, and it probably takes this long for intelligence to emerge on any planet, 
and then some percentage of those you think would figure out how to travel between the stars and you can calculate how long that would take, then if they started out anywhere, given the lifetime of the galaxy, which is so much longer than the lifetime of a technological civilization, then they should be everywhere. So where are they? And it was, it was his way of saying, well, mathematically, let's think about this. And people turn that into something called the Fermi paradox, which is that if intelligent life is something that happens elsewhere, as it happened here on Earth, then it shouldn't be that hard for some fraction of those civilizations to have figured out how to populate the whole galaxy and it should be full of obvious signs of aliens. And the, facts that, the fact that it's not is the so-called Fermi paradox. Now, it's not really a paradox because there are all kinds of possible answers. You know, maybe it's much harder to do interstellar travel or interstellar communication than we think. Maybe the aliens uh, don't really want to come here and talk to us or are shielding us in some way from the knowledge of their presence. You know, there's all kinds of possible answers. But so it really is, it's really more the Fermi question than mm -hmm. the Fermi paradox, although it's often called the Fermi paradox. It's not, it's not really a paradox, but it's, uh, I think, rightfully often attributed to Fermi just because he had this penchant for posing these kinds of questions that really got people to think to the root of a complex problem like that. So the, the name the Fermi Paradox has persisted in science for this question of why haven't we found aliens or why haven't they found us? Of course, one answer is they have found us, but they're, they're on the DL about it. You know? <laughs> now, uh, there's kind of a controversy out now, and, and it's even become even more so of late, as to whether or not we really do want to find them or want them to be even able to find us. Stephen Hawking has said that, has pointed out, that didn't work out so well for the Indians in Columbus. Uh, Elon Musk seems to not be happy about it. I mean, I don't know why, but... Um, so talk about the fears of what might happen and also the... You refer to a, a number of answers. There's like six variations of the fairy paradox of the way it works out. So talk about which of those are the most important and interesting to you. Yeah, well, you know, there's, there's an old idea that goes back to, you know, SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, was really born at the very end of the 1950s a famous paper in Nature magazine by uh, Giuseppe Cacconi and Philip Morrison pointing out that with the radio technology that hadn't been developed really in World War II and with radio telescopes that had been developed for astronomy that we now had this technology that could be used to communicate across the galaxy to other stars, even distant ones and planets around other stars with other creatures who had similar technology. And then starting in the 1960s, Frank Drake and then other people actually decided, well, let's try it. Let's listen. And, of course, we haven't heard anything yet. But a lot of the early theorists of SETI had this very utopian view of what might happen if we did make contact. I'm talking about people like Carl Sagan and Frank Drake and Arthur C. Clarke, of course, wrote about this in fiction and nonfiction, this idea that it could lead to this transcendent leap in human evolution both because just the knowledge that we're not alone 
in itself might really help us to see ourselves in a more of a cosmic way that, you know, realize our unity here on Earth uh, when we compare to, you know, whatever else is out there really different from any of us, that we're really pretty much all the same. But not only that, that we might get some actual information from them, from some, presumably, uh, they're much more advanced or that they've been around much longer than we have, anybody, because we're such babies in cosmic time. And anybody that's out there has... It developed probably much more advanced technology and maybe a much more advanced culture than we have as far as learning how to survive some of the challenges we have now. So there's been this sort of utopian view of um, what contact would mean. More recently, there have been some of these darker visions of what if, what if they meant to do us harm or what if there's a reason why there's a supposedly a great silence. I don't think there really is a great silence because we haven't really looked that long and hard and maybe we don't know how to look but people talk about the great silence because we haven't found anything in you know 60 years or 70 years of listening so uh, people have been saying well what you know what if there's a danger out there maybe everybody's being quiet because they know that there's a reason to be quiet because you don't want to draw attention to yourselves or maybe it's quiet because something has come along and destroyed all the young civilizations that start talking so there's this counter narrative of of danger it's not really a new idea you know mm -hmm. science fiction has been um, talking about scary aliens since H.G. Wells, you know, and probably before. But, you know, and then somebody like Stephen Hawking talks about it and everybody quotes it. But, of course, you know, Hawking, as brilliant a cosmologist as he is, and he's, you know, about the most brilliant there is, he doesn't know anything more about aliens and whether they're dangerous or not than, than anybody else. You know, we, we, we tend to have this phenomenon where if somebody's really a sage about one thing, then we hang on their every word about other topics, you know. But... Uh, like I said, very smart guy, very impressive. I'm in awe of him. I would never argue with him about black holes. But, you know, he doesn't know anything more about aliens than, than you do or anybody listening does. No, nobody really knows anything about them. So, well, so, I think you do. You're the, you're, well, you're, you're the, you're the astrobiologist. You I know a lot been, about what people have said about aliens, and I know a lot about you planetary the evolution. You have job of everybody who ever read science fiction yeah. when they were a kid. But you know what? But, but, but I mean it. Nobody knows anything about aliens. I, sure. I, 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 sure, I know as much about it mm -hmm. as anyone else does because I do know about planetary evolution and I know about um, the theory of life and the theory of SETI but but what I'm saying is the most knowledgeable human being whoever that is knows nothing about aliens you know because we just don't know so people can make these pronouncements but that does leave open this possibility this realistic possibility you can't completely rule out these scary dangerous sort of paranoid scenarios there could be some thing out there that means to do us harm and then that leads to an interesting question, this debate now about, well, should we send messages? Is there a reason not to? Uh, and, I, and I do talk about that in the book because, you know, it's a recent debate that I've been somewhat involved in and I find really fascinating. I think oh, they're yes. smart, interesting people on both sides of this debate. But I also feel like it encapsulates some of our current problems in trying to see ourselves as a global entity and trying to ask the question, well, how would we speak for Earth? And how would we, in some way, try to get global buy-in in this idea? You know, you're never going to have a perfect vote where everybody on the planet has a clicker and, you know, <laughs> gets a vote. But you can try to, you can try to devise a, as globally inclusive a process as you can and do outreach and really try to make this some kind of a semblance of a global effort to, to address this question. And I think that's a cool way to think about it. 
we don't need to be in any huge hurry to send messages to aliens. Let's, let's take the pulse of humanity. What if it takes us 50 years to do that? Then let's have a 50-year process. You know, what's the hurry in sending out a message right now? So there are people that want to just go and do this. And, um, and I understand that. And, I, you know, I've been on sort of both sides of this. And I, I wrote about that in the book. I sort of evolved my view about this because I, I've become more sympathetic to the people saying, Let's have a moratorium and while we try to figure this out and, and get some sense of global buy-in, because maybe that's more important than sending the message itself. Uh, the way in which this question can help us, in some small way, help us with that essential job of crystallizing a more coherent global view of ourselves, which is really our, our task right now. That's our important task. Yeah, we need to understand ourselves. Uh, and I think, too, that and you point this out that most of our concepts of aliens start with ourselves and that's a huge mistake and my take is is that alien intelligent alien life might arrive here look at us not see us as either life or intelligent or anything i mean or they may look at us and say well, so what? They build houses. Coral builds houses. Right, right. So, so yeah, so one thing I, I talk about in this book, in, in um, the, the sort of almost the end of the book, the penultimate two chapters are about SETI and how that applies to our own situation here on Earth. And I question whether we would seem like an intelligent species. <laughs> no, we wouldn't. To, to real intelligence. And it may have to do... You can define intelligence, and I try to define intelligence in this book in terms of the problem we're facing now. Our sort of central problem is can we devise a mature, long-term, healthy relationship with our world-changing technology and become an entity that is sort of gracefully integrated with the functioning of our planet with our technology as opposed to the kind of reckless, uh, unconscious tinkering we've been doing. And to me, that seems like a reasonable definition of intelligence. You can look at a species like ours, which isn't quite there yet, and you'd say, yeah, we're very clever. We've invented all these machines. We're doing all this stuff. We're sending out spacecraft. But is this going to last? And if, if it's just a spasm of, cre of clever creativity and then it, it collapses under its own weight and can't last, then you can say, well, that wasn't really intelligence. That was a burst of some kind of proto-intelligence that didn't really work out. <laughs> but on the other hand, if we can go through this evolution that I think we're, we're coming to grips with now that, that we need to, uh, this, is, this is our task, to uh, mold ourselves into a species, to reinvent ourselves as a species that uses our technology in, some, in the service of long-term survival and stability and not just of our own survival, but the perpetuation of the natural systems that we're integrated in and that we depend upon. So preservation of other species as well. If we can turn that corner, then I think we would look like an intelligent species. So, so I have this definition of, of true intelligence or planetary intelligence, which is basically what we're aspiring to achieve now and what some other species out there that has gone through this bottleneck would, uh, th th you know, that we're, that we're approaching now that we're in this bottleneck of trying to get to the other, other side, they would look at us and say, well, um, yeah, they may have what it takes, but they're not an intelligent species yet, and we're not going to try to talk to them. Um, you know, unless there's also this scenario that Arthur C. Clarke has promoted that maybe there's somebody out there that would look for species 
that are struggling and, and try to help them out. You know, you can argue that that's the theme of 2001, although mm -hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of ambiguity there. It's or child, childhood's end, right? Yeah. Clark was into that, that the, the notion of, of uh, these sort of transcendent uh, wise aliens coming and helping us through our struggles. In which case, you know, that's a, that is another argument for, for doing SETI that, you know, yeah, we could use some help right now. <laughs> <laughs> we sure could. I've been speaking with David Grinspan. His new book is Earth in Human Hands. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Grinspan. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.